0: In our last few sessions before spring break, we discussed World War I propaganda posters followed by Futurism and Dadaism. Today we're going to go a step beyond that into the 1920s and 30s and talk about Art Deco. Art Deco specifically refers to a particular style of post-Cubist pictorial art and design that was popular in the 20s and 30s after the war throughout France, England, Germany, Austria, and the US. We'll particularly focus on a few notable art deco designers, including A.M. Cassandra, Paul Colin, and Jean Collieu in France. And then we'll look at the London Underground and the work of Edward McKnight Coffer and Austin Cooper. Now, between World War I and World War II, Europe and North America were experiencing An economic boom that was returning significant buying power to the entire population who was flourishing in that time. The affluent, the glamorous, and frankly hungry for luxury modern consumers idealized not only extravagance, but in the style of the futurist, also speed and a machine inspired aesthetic. That was once again, driving businesses to turn to art and to designers to distinguish themselves from their competition. The designers sought to satisfy these modern tastes, this aesthetic by combining the decorative sensibilities of Art Nouveau tempered by the reductive simplicity, the geometry and spatial organization of cubism infused with the energy and that avant-garde machine worship of futurism. These historical styles were then integrated with the emerging characteristics of de Stijl and Bauhaus, which we'll discuss in the coming weeks, and together all created a very distinctive aesthetic and a communication method that was another significant step forward in the development of graphic design. Eventually dubbed Art Deco in the 60s, the movement Uh, was in reference to the 1925 Paris Design Exposition. This post-war mashup of styles was generally unified by sleek lines, geometric shapes, symmetrical organization, and simplicity, and extended not just to design, but fine art, advertising architecture, and even handmade goods. Now, while the style eventually did reach mass production, most of the art deco uh, product design shared that carefully handcrafted quality and of course the subsequent expense that the arts and crafts ideology did. During the early thirties, the art deco style was joined in France by what is known sometimes condescendingly as modern. Moderne is marked by the use of very straight, often diagonal lines, perfect circles. And it was only superficially connected to the avant-garde machine aesthetic of Art Deco, though it really had more to do with creating this romantic appeal of fast cars and sleek trains and these enormous luxurious ocean liners. Let's look first at France where um, Art Deco originated in 1925 one of the most prolific designers of the art deco and modern styles um, am cassandra was born in the ukraine and trained in paris he began designing posters in 1923 to support himself through school starting with an advertisement that you see here for the paris furniture store au boucheron which translates directly to the woodcutter Note how similarly to Art Nouveau, Cassandra brings focus to the word rather than to the product. With the woodcutter illustration, and you can't see not a st- single stick of furniture in sight. So, kind of like Art Nouveau, it's not um, focused so much on the product as the art itself, and even the typography. So, very much the antithesis of uh, Zaklakat Placott and Plakat steel. Um, the In the composition, you see how the symmetrical diagonals of the figure on one side and the falling tree on the other side meet right there in the middle and are propped up by these arrows of gradated color that draw your eye to the name of the store directly. Now, Cassandra's letters were almost always constructed with drawing instruments by hand and words that were integrated into the overall design or relegated to the borders. These little idiosyncrasies and quirks in the lettering here are very typical of hand drawn type before um, enlarged printers' typefaces like the uh, 12 pica lines were widely available for lithographic posters. Note how the capital C in Boucheron is exactly half the shape of the O, like it was cut right down the middle. And the capital I's in the small letters have dots. Now in the subtitle, looking down below, the triangles are used again to take the place of the crossbars of the A, the E, and the dot over the I, and then show up again at the terminal of the G. Now, to Cassandra, geometry was a fundamental element of all parts of design, images, proportions, lettering, spatial organization. His bold, simple designs emphasized dimensionality, simplicity, and that cubist ideal of symbolic iconography. Um, He buried a lot of symbolic meaning into nearly everything he did. He was not a slave to the prevailing elements of art deco though, but instead tended to integrate other forms of design such as purism, which is where he kind of started Um, And he did maintain a friendship with the purist artist Le Corbusier for many years. But he would reinvent and repurpose um, and even combine those different elements of those movements to serve his objective. And his objective was to present the product in the most glamorous and luxurious way possible. And in a sense, kind of propping up this capitalist utopian attitude he had. Now, while his illustrative style is very distinctive, Cassandra nearly always started with the text, beginning with the words and integrating the images into the letter forms rather than the other way around, as Zapulkar artists had done. He once said that it was the text or the letter form that would spark the ideas that generated his iconically plastic forms. Now, one of Cassandra's most recognizable works shown here is the famous Dubonnet liquor advertisement. This is sort of the first conception we see of the serial poster, a progression of images that uh, tells a story. The message and the meaning here are communicated very gradually from left to right as the man starts drinking the liquor and then fills himself up, filling the name of the product as well. Now this filling the figure and filling the name was sort of symbolic and suggested to the viewer that the product was very satisfying, that it would fill you up physically and psychologically, emotionally. Now Cassandra even further layers the message with the way he chose to fill the words in each panel. Now in the first panel, the filled letters spelled Dubo which phonetically connects to the French word for beauty, of beauty, du beau. In the second panel, du bon is highlighted, which sounds very much like the French word for good. And then finally, the full name of the brand itself shows up in the third panel, so beautiful, good, du bonnet. Now, while the repetition of that image may suggest to some that concept of mass production the overwhelming message of this sort of physically and emotionally satisfying luxury consumerism could be very quickly and clearly understood even while zipping by in a speeding car the poster had this instant visual appeal with a bright background very crisp geometric shapes and smooth sleek edges the integration of the text and the image together to convey that symbolic meaning the luxury and affluence and these bold machine-like forms is very characteristic of cassandra's work uh, in another beverage ad for french band, for the french brandy pivolo cassandra again layers symbolic imagery with this clever word play the name pivolo is a phonetic play on a phrase again that was often used with uh, pilots who were in training a puivolo, which means and then fly high, which that in turn originated from the colloquial phrase pivolo, meaning the magpie flies high. So Cassandra took all of this history, this background, this context, and used it to communicate or convey this playfulness and aspiration by integrating the magpie as sort of the central motif and then juxtapose that with that glass that had these curves that meshed seamlessly with the curves and the form of the bird. The concept of flight is again subtly echoed if you look up at the exaggerated scale of the V in Pivolo. The V is a familiar formation not just for birds but for planes as well. Now Cassandra was in fact fascinated by modern machines and some of his most exceptional works were ads for steamship lines and railway companies. Uh, he was adept at infusing these enormous hunks of metal with romantic sense of poetry that spoke to travelers, especially the status conscious. In Lutland Peak*, he exaggerates the ocean liner size in relation to the tugboat to communicate the safety, solidity, and strength of the larger ship. You almost don't even notice the tugboat at first as this enormous, luxurious, sweeping form of the ship dwarfs this common little workhorse. And you can imagine that this big, luxurious ship represents the status and the luxury of international travel for the rich, while that little tugboat represents the common man people just doing their workaday jobs. Now the severe lines of the geometric shapes throughout this image are softened a little bit by the organic texture that you can see in the smoke puffing out of the tugboat and the steamship. And in that gradation of the reflection from the bottom of the ship down to the bottom of the image in the water, that same streamlining and scale are evident here in his poster for the Normandy which is arguably one of his most famous travel posters as well. The first French ship um, to rival British liners in speed. Now the scale, the texture, the gradation, that sweeping line quality all suggest the Normandy's formidable strength, its size, and its speed while its symmetry, the elegant minimalist lettering you see, and the modern geometry suggests that it's this glamorous first-class status, and that appeal to the fashionable and the wealthy French. Now in contrast, this poster for the Dutch liner Staten Dam shows only the ship's smokestacks, so it's a little more suggestive, drawing the viewer almost literally into the image and demanding they interact the um, viewer is faced with this vast black void of the first tube's perfectly circular opening. And here again, Cassandra uses those flowing lines of smoke and the graduated planes of color to soften up that sharp geometry. Now, while Cassandra conceded that his work had an aesthetic appeal, in his opinion, the poster was only, quote, a means of communication between the seller and the public somewhat like a telegraph. The poster artist is like a telephone operator. He does not draft messages. He dispatches them. No one asks him, what's No one asks him what he thinks. All he's asked to do is communicate clearly, powerfully, and precisely." End quote. So typography was a major element of Cassandra's communication style. His innovative and daring aesthetic extended to the way he created his letter forms. He once said that, quote, the letter only begins to live when it is in its place in the word. The graphic images of this word forms in our mind a harmony that corresponds exactly to an idea, end quote. So Cassandra believed very deeply in the power of not just the word itself, but its presentation as a shape in the letter form and as a part of an overall image. In his typeface bifur, which is iconic of the Art Deco period, he uses open lines and unfinished shapes and forms to force the viewer again to interact, filling in those missing parts so that the characters can be read and understood. Uh, He used this technique in kind of a subtler way in um, his uh, typeface ACR, which contrasts outlined white areas or negative space with these solid black sections. Because of the outlines, it's easier to read, but still maintains that geometric, unfinished, edgy look. A is a little softer, it was created in 1937. And most of its lowercase letters, you see, are drawn as small capitals, which is a bit of a throwback to the days before Roman half Roman typography was a big influence in Cassandra's work. In comparison, when you look at the lettering in other French designers' posters, it tended to be static and even a little boring and unimaginative, very much like the popular trend of just inserting a single cubist-inspired figure in the image. Uh, Jean-Carlu, Paul Collin, and Charles Lupeau were very notable but rare exceptions to this. We'll look first at Paul Collin. He became a designer almost entirely by accident when at 33 years old, it's never too late to start a new career, he was asked by a friend to design sets and programs and posters for a Parisian theater company on the Champs-Élysées. His early style you see here in La Revue Negre, which is a very controversial poster for the African-American dancer Josephine Baker. It is dynamic, energetic, but admittedly a racist caricature that depicts Baker with her male dancers. The image was shocking even to the very modern Uh, sensibilities of Parisians, which was no small achievement in the city that uh, gave birth to Moulin Rouge and La Belle Epoque. And it reinforced this very primitive stereotype. Nonetheless, both Collin and Baker, who were friends and even lovers for a while, profited uh, greatly from the notoriety. Their careers flourished afterwards, just, I guess, sort of um, underscoring that Uh, Any press is good press, even bad press. Now, in contrast, looking forward at the 1933 or 1930 poster that Colon did for the Paris Ethnographic Museum, there are elements that are characteristic of his later style throughout his very prolific career. This poster features a monumental profile of the Easter Island sculptures, we see kind of from a lower aspect from below, and then a very straightforward facing, colorfully cubist presentation of this life-size mask, very similar to how Holvain would, in Zach Placott, would often offer you uh, flip-flopping viewpoints of his subjects. Now in his poster for L'Air Operatif, The R is so large in comparison to every other form in the composition that placing it in the center and putting the figure in the middle of it effectively isolates the figure of the waiter in this vast area of color. And we know from design principles that isolation is one of the ways that you add weight or focus to a figure in a composition, which brings your attention directly to that waiter. Then the focus on that three-dimensional R further adds to these symbolic layers of the message as the pronunciation for R, which was more like air, was a play on the tagline. And the tagline up there means no air, no appetite. So again, Colin was also very proficient in layering symbolic meaning and suggestion in not just his words, but his images and the interaction of his images with the text. This whole vein-esque simplicity, the flatness of the surface, the dramatizing of the images with that extreme contrast and scale and points of view were consistent with many of his later works, such as we see here as in the poster for dancer Lisa Duncan. Now you see two images there, one in color and one in black and white. I'm not sure why, but almost all of the color versions of the poster I found didn't have the piano player. But the ones in the book and the ones in the historical record refer to the tiny little piano player, so you see that one there in the black and white. Now in this composition, um, Collin creates a very dynamic, almost abstract, streamlined figure that interacts not only with the typography, with her toes sort of pushing against the top of the U but also against this simple bold shape in the background that represents a piano being played by a teeny tiny figure in uh, comparison to hers. Now that piano figure in the background creates, it has some dimensionality created by the gradation in the lower right corner or the lower right side, but also as it runs through the dancer's legs, changes her figure, adding a sense of um, costume and creating more of a sense of dynamism as well. Um, Colin often used this technique, usually placing a figure, whether it's a person or some other colored uh, central figure against a geometric background, creating sometimes double images by using superimposition, transparent overlays, and Uh, dynamic motion another exceptionally talented and prolific designer of the French Art Deco period was Jean Carleau Jean Carleau was a significant contributor not just to Art Deco but to graphic design in general except he almost didn't become a designer at all he was run over by a trolley while being schooled in Paris and lost his right arm Carlu had to abandon his pursuit of a career in architecture, which was his lifelong dream, and instead turned to becoming a designer. He taught himself how to draw with his left hand. Now the modern art deco aesthetic came very naturally to Carlu. He sort of instinctively understood the movement and had a strong grasp of Uh, visual communication and messaging, which he applied to his design style. His design style and his philosophy were about being direct, concise, and all composed with a very mathematical precision, yet still preserved an emotional value in the way he treated his subjects. He used straight lines and angles to communicate tension and alertness, but softened those with curves and organic shapes that represented more ease and comfort and sort of freedom of expression. Now, Carleau's severe simplicity and minimalism, as well as the juxtaposition of contrast in line quality, are both visible in this cover of Vanity Fair, which features a man and a woman facing opposite directions, but created out of very simple neon lines, not an extra shape in sight, no decoration, just simple neon curves and uh, lines against a night sky. Uh, underneath the cover, or the, the name of the magazine, which is also very simple, straight neon lines. And this shows the essence of Colin's style with just the barest minimum. In fact, um, it was his philosophy that he would never use two lines where one line would do. So um, a quote that I often like to give to students from Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, which was many many centuries before is that perfection is achieved not when there is nothing left to add but when there's nothing left to take away so only ever using the bare minimum uh, a philosophy which Carlux shared he was also very committed to the messaging and you see all of this come together in a poster for mon savant soap Here, the figure of the man peeking out from behind the shower curtain is an outline, is outlined by mostly organic black lines, some of them short, some of them um, not uniform at all. But the fill or the color is this very simple orange shape that's made out of nothing but lines and angles. And if you note how the line of the mouth is two very simple horizontal curved lines, one just a little deeper than the other, they sit right up against um, an equilateral triangle upside down of negative space in that orange wash of color. Again, juxtaposing the softness of the mouth with the sharpness, tension, and alertness of those geometric uh, straight lines and angles. Now, if you look at the where the figure is looking, his eye line, combined with the overall triangular shape of the image composition and the line of the figure's right arm, all of it leads directly to the blue shape of the soap. That is a contrast, not just in color, blue being the contrast to orange, but also in its representation that soap is the only remotely realistic depiction in the image. If you look at the gradation um, and the lines, the slight slight sense of embossing of the name. Carlo's commitment to messaging was um, not just notable, but practical and logical in his focus. And this prompted him to test his designs for commuters, for legibility and impact by running them past spectators at varying speeds to be assured they could be read and understood and noticed even by people moving at high speeds which had never been a consideration before the invention of the automobile and of course after its invention the automobile only got faster and faster so it was wise of him to test whether or not these things could be read and understood at high speeds relatively. And this process is actually still used today by many designers and even uh, government organizations to assess the effectiveness of highway signs and billboards. In fact, most of the green highway signs you see now, um, the lettering is, I believed it it's just called highway, if I'm remembering correctly. And that came out of extensive testing of what commuters or travelers could see when driving down the highway, even in poor weather conditions. So he was kind of a pioneer of that sort of research. And the last French art deco designer we're going to look at is Leonetto Capiello. And he's notable um, really kind of for his survival. He was one of the very few poster designers who didn't just survive but flourished in the transition from La Belle Epoque and Art Nouveau to post-Cubist modernism at the turn of the century when many of those Art Nouveau designers, as you recall, sort of fell out of favor with not just the public but with um, clients as well. One of Capiello's most famous designs here was produced in the art deco period for Bouillon cube, noted as one of the most arresting and economical images to ever appear on an advertising poster. The perfect symmetry of the bull's head from left to right, combined with this very dramatic negative space that forms the whiteness of the right eye. And then the bullion cube, which has perspective, even though it's not shaded, so sort of a two and a half D perspective, need no text to communicate the product. It's so powerful in its composition. It's almost a German saque The product is shown in a composition that's both literal and symbolic. So the bowl is not only the literal source of the beef bouillon or beef stock, but it also suggests sort of this strength that a consumer would want in their preference for the flavor of the product. So um, really no need for text other than in the name of the product there. Moving on to England, the Art Deco movement in the UK developed alongside its Parisian counterpart, most notably in posters advertising the London Underground. Now, design for the London Underground started much earlier, Um, but graphic designers in this period, while never fully integrated into the Cubist movement, were able to find a home or an outlet for their, their modernist style designing for the London Underground. The London Underground was the first underground electric railway, railway in Europe at the turn of the century. So even before Art Deco, there was a lot of design around the London Underground. For instance, the logo, the original maps. but where it was first plagued by very many uh, technical limitations later there were enough improvements to the railway system safety and to its affordability for the public that it spurred very focused marketing campaigns to attract reluctant riders and sort of promote the whole idea of riding on a train underground so this marketing campaign really focused on what the public's objections were and how to overcome them. One of the most prolific designers for the London Underground actually wasn't even British at all. Edward McKnight Coffer was born in Montana, um, also educated in the United States, but arrived in England in 1914 after he'd been touring around Europe for a while. And while he was on that European tour, he was very deeply influenced by the German zapplicat designers like Holvain. So, in fact, you can see Holvane's inspiration here in the uh, Koffer's first London Underground poster for the North Downs. If you look closely at the hills, you can sort of see that paint-like texture that we saw in many of Holvane's designs in Zac Now, while Colfer's style may be a little bit reminiscent of Zac his um Aesthetic was really a reinvention of his own take on cubism. There were small areas of color, squares and triangles and segments of circles that were often faded and graduated using stippling and then juxtaposed light against dark to imply depth and dimension. So it was a bit of um, a mashup of a number of styles, sort of taking most of its cues from cubism. Like Carlu, Collin, and Cassandra, Coffer was an exception among art deco designers in his integration of type and image in creating layers of meaning to his compositions. Here we see Coffer's power, the nerve center of London's underground. This has some of the geometry of Cassandra's work, but the idea is all Coffer. It's a very unique combination of Graphic conventions metaphorical illustration stylized forms geometric shapes now This poster was not without criticism. In fact um, Some critics called it disorganized so there was a sense that He had put some of these elements together without really realizing what he was doing the Nerve center, the power is represented here twice, by its source, the power station, which is red, and also by the black muscular arm in the fist, from which that stylized lightning is shooting, which is a sign for the type of power, which is electricity. The words nerve center, or the idea of a nerve center, is a little less clear, illustrated with the nerves as the fine blue Vein-like arms you see running down the arm, and, or vein-like lines running down the arm from that big circle. That black circle makes you think kind of of a gramophone record, which was really how people listen to music other than the radio, which overlaps the power station with the help of spattered ink. Now at the center of the disc is the underground symbol. That underground symbol had been designed around 1906 so it was fairly recognizable at the time and could probably tolerate being represented in all black rather than in its signature red and white. Um, Underground is symbolized by the lightning and the word power mostly black is related by its color and position through the circle down the arm to the word underground. The red in the power lettering connects it to the power station visually but red is also the color of the nerve center lettering as well. So the location of nerve center, which is in I, literally the place where decisions are taken or control exercise is a little bit confusing. So even though he used a wide range of these graphic conventions, you could argue that the message is not quite as clear as it could be. Austin Cooper um, was also responsible for some of the London Underground's most uh, recognizable posters, notably the winter and summer posters. He had created initially a series of three Cubist collage-inspired posters, um, but his most memorable contribution was probably these two. It is warmer down below and it is cooler down below. Um, These were sort of a daring new exploration of using pure geometric shape and color just those two things to communicate the message of the image in these posters now the gradations of color that are rising from the taglines lettering suggest temperature changes from cold blue to warm reds and yellows in winter and then reversing that gradation where it rises from um, cooler air down below to warm reds and yellows in the summertime so given the sense that Below ground was going to be uh, more comfortable climate-wise for travel than traveling above ground. The imagery of both posters probably communicate the message as well as or better than the text itself. In the years between the two wars, design flourished in Germany as well as that country's artists absorbed all the new ideas and the methods from all the many European cultures that surrounded its borders, much the way that Switzerland did during Zach and Blocot deal. Now, it's a little counterintuitive to imagine how all of those different styles could come together, the geometric cubist shapes, pictorial modernist composition, French typography, futurist uh, ideas and sensibilities, as well as the rigid organization and typography of Russian constructivism and De um, in order to enhance those traditionally energetic and, and heavy German forms. It sounds like it would be visually bewildering and a disorganized combination, but in the hands of German graphic designers who were rigorously trained in art institutes and had access to the latest and best printing technology. These many diverse elements were unified to achieve a high degree of excellence in poster craft overall. Heinz Schulz Neudem was a staff designer for a motion picture publicity uh, department at the universal film Communica- corporation in germany his iconic poster seen here for the 1926 science fiction movie metropolis is actually still the image that's used as the thumbnail to identify the film on streaming services today um, i know back when it was on netflix that was the image that was used what's interesting about this poster itself is how The message is communicated by taking many of the graphic conventions that were common to Art Deco, the geometric shapes, the shading, the sleek lines, and the large scale of the subjects, and subverting the overall Art Deco attitude of um, optimism and luxury, and showing instead this dark future of the film, where people are then replaced By robots. So even though Art Deco traveled in a number of different directions and had a number of different incarnations in the hands of various artists in various locations, you could sum up the movement sort of simply as a hybrid of Art Nouveau's tendency to sacrifice subject for artistic form combined with pictorial modernism's focus on integrating text and image together and layering with meaning. It's one of the main routes by which modern art movements were eventually transformed into attractive, impactful commercial messages. In our next lecture, we'll discuss how a second route from fine art to graphic design showed how Dutch distil and Russian constructivism also contributed to the evolution of the discipline. That concludes our lecture on art deco and post-cubist pictorial modernism and art modern. If you have any questions about the lecture or about anything at all, please don't hesitate to reach out to me via email.